Acts chapter 2, reading from verse 41. Well, actually, we'll go back up to verse 37 just for context. Now, when they heard this, that's the sermon, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now that's our reading. So the background here um, in this section, as we've been coming through Acts at breakneck speed, we've only actually ended up in the, at the end of the second chapter. But as we've come through this, here's the background. The Lord Jesus, as we remember, has been raised from the dead and has showed himself to be alive to his disciples. That's the beginning of Acts in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And then he gave instructions. One of them was for the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they were baptised with the Holy Spirit. And that's verse 4 to verse 8 of chapter 1. And then the narrative continues in Acts. And while the disciples were watching the Lord Jesus ascended bodily from their presence with the promise given to them that he would return in the same way in the future. And so the disciples, with 120 in total, Uh, gathered in the upper room and they gathered to wait and to pray. While they were there, followed uh, God's leading in appointing uh, another apostle to make their number back up due to Judas' betrayal. And Matthias was appointed to replace Judas. And then you've got the day of Pentecost arriving. You remember we spent some time speaking about what that actually was to a Jew and the feast and the significance of it prophetically, and the fulfilment of it in Acts chapter 2. And we saw that there was a miracle that took place there, in that the Holy Spirit descended, and you remember he came, and his presence in the room was signified by the sound that enveloped everyone present. The sound being as of a rushing mighty wind, and a rushing mighty wind being a symbol used elsewhere in the Bible to speak of the Holy Spirit. It's a very apt symbol. And the Lord Jesus spoke about this in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, and he was using this idea of wind is something that you can see the effects of, but you can't actually see it, and that's like the Holy Spirit. You see his effect 
his presence, not that you see him, but you see the fact that he's there by the effect on other people. And the noise was like that violent rushing mighty wind. And you remember um, it was signifying the fact that the Holy Spirit was there and they were immersed. They were baptised, not in water, but in the Holy Spirit. And uh, as a representative group of the whole body of Christ, the body of Christ was baptised on that day in that room, representatively. And then gifts were given. And these gifts were not given corporately, so they were all immersed in the Spirit of God, corporately. But individually, there was the cloven tongue as a fire that went and sat above all the disciples' heads, signifying that each had been given a gift of speaking in tongues. That is a linguistic gift, a gift which was miraculous, and it was a linguistic miracle that then took place because filled by the Spirit of God, they then began to speak and exercise that gift. And they could speak, and the languages are detailed in Acts chapter 2, and the dialects, and they could speak languages that they had never learned. And the Spirit of God enabled them to communicate the wonderful works of God in these various languages to the audience present. And we saw that there was then a question that came from those who were observing this. They asked the question, what does this mean? Acts 2 verse 12. And Peter steps forward, Peter of all people. Peter steps forward to answer the question. Now, he discounts the accusation that was made that they were drunk. He discounts that. And then he moves to answer the question, what does this mean? And that's the sermon that you have in chapter 2. Peter is answering that question. And we saw last time that as he answers the question, he demonstrates to them from the Old Testament that what they were seeing was consistent with prophecies that they should have known. Prophecies that would find their future fulfillment in a day yet to take place. But what was happening was consistent in character with those prophecies. And it ought to have spoken to those present. They ought to have understood that this was actually something that should have caused them to realise that Christ the Messiah had come and that this new um, era was being ushered in. And we spoke about the day of the Lord and so forth last time. So then we come to this section. And what's happening is that Peter's sermon is coming to a conclusion. He has answered the question. And he has demonstrated that the Lord Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. So there's the sermon. And the sermon is preached. Then you have the effect of the sermon on the audience. From verse 37 down. So the sermon finishes in verse 36 with its culmination, presenting Christ. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly, God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So there's the culmination of the sermon. What does this mean was the question. The answer, ultimately, is that it means that the Christ that you crucified is the Messiah. You got it wrong. And this speaking in tongues and the communication of the wonderful works of God should have drawn them to this conclusion with their Old Testament knowledge 
We got this wrong. This is the Messiah. We crucified the one we've been waiting for, the one we've been hoping for. And the effect was this in verse 37. When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. They were pierced right to the heart. That's what happens when the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and penetrates the heart of an individual. Still happens today. When someone is listening to the gospel or the gospel has been communicated to them and the Spirit of God works and takes the Word of God and brings it to bear on the heart of an individual, this is what happened. They were pricked in their heart. They were deeply moved by what they heard. There's a play in words here, I think. It's almost paradoxical because... The Jews who pierced their own Messiah, Zechariah 12 and 10, were now themselves being pierced by the news of that Messiah. And they asked the question, what shall we do? What shall we do? There's the question. That really is the point that the presentation of Christ brings an individual to if they're willing to engage with what they hear. What shall we do? We need to do something. And so here's the second question. The first question is, what does this mean? The second question is, what shall we do? That's a progression of the gospel upon the heart of an individual. What does it mean? What do we do? Now, you cannot get the what shall we do without the what does this mean? There needs to be the, the communication of the gospel, the explanation of Christ, the presentation of Christ. There needs to be a response. I say this over and over again. I've said it many times here. There needs to be a response, not to just an emotive plea to do something and to respond, but to respond to who? To do something about what? There needs to be substance, as there was in this sermon. Christ was presented. He was presented in terms of his miracles. He was presented in terms of his life and his death and his resurrection and the consistency of Christ with the revealed word of God. This was how it was preached to a Jewish audience. But there was substance. So when they respond and say, what shall we do? It is, what shall we do because of what we've heard? And what we've heard in substance. This often in the Bible is the desired response when the gospel is preached. John the Baptist is preaching. In Luke 3 and verse 10, the response is the same thing. What shall we do when they heard John the Baptist preaching? You remember after Saul saw the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus road, he said individually, what shall I do, Lord? And the Philippian jailer, you remember, sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's consistent. There needs to be a response. There needs to be action. In order for salvation, there needs to be action. And it's not a salvation of works. This is the action of faith that is required. And the response of faith. And so Peter gives the answer. The answer was, repent and be baptised Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's the answer. 
So the information is conveyed. Christ is the Messiah. Christ was crucified. You've got it all wrong. He is the answer. He's the one that you need. They hear it. They're convicted by the Spirit of God working in their hearts. Their conscience is pierced and they respond, what must we do? The answer is this, repent, be baptised, be forgiven and receive the Holy Spirit. Now it's interesting, I'll come back to that in a moment. It's interesting what he then goes on to say in verse 39. Here is, here is the reason why. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So salvation requires, Acts 2.21, that a person calls upon the name of the Lord. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's in the message. What shall we do? The answer is repent and be baptised. This is what you need to do. But here's the balance to it. Because not only are they to do something, they need to recognise that God is doing something here as well. God is in this. The Spirit of God is working because he says, even to as many as the Lord our God shall call. So they have to call upon the Lord, and the Lord is calling here as well. There is a balance to this, as there is in all gospel endeavour. When we tip the balance too much one way or the other, we are actually taking away what is balanced in Scripture. God works in the salvation of an individual. Jonah was right. Salvation is of the Lord. But remember this. He still had to get on his knees and he still had to pray to the Lord for salvation. And the sinner who hears the gospel asks the question, what do I need to do? And that's the right question to ask. You need to repent. You need to be baptised. You need to be forgiven. But at the same time, don't think that God's doing nothing. God is calling in the gospel sinners to repentance. And sinners have to respond in faith and repentance. And so they did here. And they were baptised. Now this was actually something that would be quite familiar to a Jewish audience. They did baptise in the Old Testament, particularly, not in the Old Testament, particularly in the days before the Lord Jesus Christ came. That's why when John was baptising, it wasn't something totally um, foreign to them, his baptism. But this is what they're going to do now. They're going to take the instruction to repent and to be baptised in order to be forgiven and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't misunderstand this passage. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. But baptism is always seen as an inevitable step for those who do repent and are saved. And we sometimes separate them out, but the Bible keeps them very close. And baptism is that external expression. Remember the question was, what have we to do? Well, repent, turn away from your sin, get yourself baptised, Peter is saying. You'll be forgiven and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And it says in verse 40, with many other words, he did testify and exhort. It wasn't the whole 
sermon here. We're just getting snippets of it. He was preaching away at them. He was teaching them. He was exhorting them, encouraging them to, to, to repent and to trust and to be baptized and, and to be forgiven and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as they would do. And he preaches and he uses many other words which we aren't given here. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. There's an appeal. that You can hear Peter's impassioned preaching here on this day of Pentecost. Which again is remarkable that it's Peter doing the preaching. It's only about seven weeks have passed since there were other words coming out of Peter's mouth when he was denying the Lord. But here's total change in two months spell. And so here's the response given to us in verse 41. Now, if you go to Bible teaching, Bible classes, ministry meetings, conferences, you will have heard this section of the Bible taught maybe more than many others. But don't let what may be familiar words to you rob you of the sense of them in their context. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. There's a simplicity to that. Now remember the context. What did they receive? Well, they received Peter's sermon. The bits we have and the bits we don't have. His preaching of Christ, his preaching of the Messiah, his call to, 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 to call upon the name of the Lord, has, he exhorted them to do so. Their need to be forgiven, their need to repent. He was preaching it to this very large audience. And there were people listening to it saying, what do we need to do? He said, repent, be baptized, and so on. And this is another description of what they actually did. They received his word. They accepted it. They took it. And they were willing to respond to it. And they were baptized. Now, we don't know the total size of the group that was listening. But we do know that a very large number of these devout Jews repented and were saved. And although, as I mentioned, that baptism had become part of a sort of ceremonial cleansing uh, as part of Judaism, being baptised in the name of Jesus Christ was something totally different. And here... To step forward and be baptised was a risky thing to do at this point in history. Seven weeks, as I say, have passed since the Lord Jesus was put on a cross and crucified. And they are now going to step forward and very publicly associate themselves with the crucified Jesus Christ and state that they believe that he was crucified and not only that, they believed that he had risen from the dead. That's what their baptism, as we so often hear, and rightly hear, testify to. But this was raw. This was recent. And to be baptised in this day, albeit there were 3,000 of them, was still a big thing to do. One writer said that they probably used the ceremonial baths that were located at the base of the temple for the baptisms. Can you imagine 3,000 people getting dunked? Um, being baptised by a conveyor belt. Remember there were 120 disciples. It wasn't just Peter standing there baptising everyone as they went by him. There would have been quite a big 
event, no doubt. I don't know if it happened in one day or it happened over a few days. We're not giving these details. All we need to know is just this. There was a massive crowd of people get saved. And every one of them get baptised. And these adults, for that's what they would be, respond and trust and are baptised. That's the picture here. Why would they not have been baptised? What possible reason would they have given for not being baptised? They've seen that they've accepted Christ, the crucified Saviour, as their Lord and Saviour. Be baptised then. Be baptised. And they did. But that wasn't the end of the story. So this, I can, it must have been, you know, really exciting. It must have been uh, quite a time to have been there with thousands of people in the city. And they're, they're responding positively to the gospel. And it says this. They continued steadfastly. So this was not a one and done thing. This was the start of something that would continue. This wasn't the end. This wasn't the, baptism wasn't the final thing. Baptism was just the beginning to what would unfold in their life. And this idea of continuing steadfastly is to give constant attention to, to persevere in. This was something that was going to be long term. They were going to be consistent in. They were going to be committed to. And in this initial church that's being born here, for that's what's happening, you see the basic characteristic of all churches and of salvation. Not in all its fullness, for teaching is yet to come through the apostles for that, but really here in its embryonic form, you see the character of these Christians what they wanted to do regularly, and the first thing they wanted to do regularly was commit themselves to what had started here. This was going to be at the centre of their lives now. And their new saviour and their new salvation wasn't going to be bolted on to their existing life. It was going to give character to this new life. And there were four basic elements of that new life described here. So they continued steadfastly doing what? In what? Well, it describes it to us here. In the apostles' doctrine. Now, there wasn't a Bible available. The apostles hadn't written anything at that stage. This was oral teaching. You do remember that they would be teaching these new converts. Peter's already preaching with many words to um, the people who were not yet saved, and I'm sure they continued to preach with many words after they were saved. And what would Peter and the apostles be teaching? They would be explaining all about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would be teaching how it was that he was the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. What they would be doing was carrying out the Great Commission that had been given to them, recorded in Matthew 28, which is this, to make disciples baptising them and teaching them to observe whatsoever he commanded. That's the apostles' doctrine. Now, yes, 
Paul received revelation and that's expanded out as you go through the epistles. But here in these early days, it must have been passing on what they had received from Christ. You remember things like the upper room ministry. That's a wee bit that we've got. But the days spent teaching after the resurrection. We don't really know what was taught then. But the apostles' doctrine is being communicated and they continue in it. They want to learn. So disciples are learners. That's what we learn here. And disciples, Christians, should always be learners. Paul warns in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3 that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And therefore, there will come a point, Paul says to Timothy, when people will not want to learn what is biblical and true. This happened in the Old Testament as time went on. Hosea chapter 4 verse 6 says this, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. As soon as you lose the substance, whatever it is can be manipulated and morph into something totally different over time. You need the substance. You need the hard yards of Bible teaching. Nights like tonight, when you're tired and you've made the effort to be here and it's verse by verse teaching and it's not spectacular, but it's the, it's the nuts and bolts of Bible teaching and instruction, not just at a Bible class, but week to week in your local assembly. And as you take your Bible up and read it for yourself and try and seek to learn the truth of it, this is it. It is absolutely essential as you go on in a, as a Christian that you engage with Bible teaching. It is that foundation that will shape your character, shape your life choices, shape your worldview, shape your knowledge of God, shape your usefulness for God. If you base your life on very little substance, you'll find instability becomes a characteristic. You will find that emotive, um, uninformed responses to things become a feature of your life. It's so important to be grounded on a solid foundation of Bible knowledge received by Bible teaching. And that is not sensational, I'm afraid. That's hard work. That's the hard yards, as I speak about. That's applying yourself deliberately. That's taking what you hear and thinking about it when you go away. That's, you know, what you hear on a Sunday morning here at Hope Hall when the teaching's given and just pondering it in your mind as the week goes through. That's the sort of thing we're talking about. It's the idea of verse by verse, consistent, learning what this book says, what it means, and the effect that that ought to have upon me as a Christian. And I like to sing, and we can sing and sing and sing, and sometimes sing and sing and sing, and we can enjoy each other's company and socialise, and all of that is necessary and good. But it's only necessary and good if it's built upon a solid foundation. That's such a basic thing. The Lord Jesus spoke about that. What do you think the parable about building on the sand or building in the rock is all about? 
You know, we preach that in the gospel. It's true in the gospel, but it's not really that. It's true about every aspect of building on your life on a solid foundation. And the solid foundation is the doctrine of Christ. That's what it is. Not the shifting sands of other stuff. And this early church got it right. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They were learners first and foremost before they became anything. Then it says this, the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, that's the same word that we translate sometimes as communion, signifying close mutual relationships, partnerships with one another, and common bond, and that bond is Christ. It goes way beyond socialising. Socialising is part and parcel of it. And of course, as we do that at the Bible class, we enjoy it, still eating the same pizzas we've eaten for years, but we enjoy it, I think. And the idea is more than that, though. Fellowship is sacrificially ministering to one another in life. It's the one and others of the Bible. You look them up. Love, devotion, building up, encouraging, accepting, forbearing, admonishing, caring, being kind, helpful, esteeming, comforting. All of these ideas form part of fellowship. Remember this. That when you receive, for example, into the fellowship of a local church, that's what it means. It's not membership. It's not a car. It's not like joining a union or something like that. It's not just getting access to certain, you know, it doesn't mean you can just come and break bread. Fellowship is actually joining your life together with others. Sharing in the ups and downs of life. And you see that in the early church. There was big need here. And that big need wasn't met by outside the church. It was met from within the church. And so this is the truth of what has been seen here. Fellowship. The apostles' doctrine. And breaking of bread. Now some take this just to be a meal, but I don't think it is. I think it is actually what we would speak of and what's described later by Paul as he expands the teaching of the Bible on it as the Lord's Supper. Um, the definite article is there. It's translated, could be literally translated as the breaking of bread. Um, and I would judge it's a reference to the Lord's Supper. Now, mind you, the Lord's Supper in these early days appeared to have been um, celebrated or participated in, a better word, while a meal was taking place. They call it in Jude a love feast. Um, and the idea was that they gathered together, which is why Paul had to issue some corrective teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about how they were practicing the Lord's Supper and they were now just turning into a feast and the Lord's Supper was tagged on and that wasn't to be the idea. So they were coming together and they were coming together in these early days without the apostolic teaching that was revealed to the apostle Paul about the breaking of bread, they were remembering the Lord. They were breaking bread. And that was a manifestation of obedience. It was a manifestation of affection. It was a manifestation of unity. And then also it says here, and in prayers. Now, you may have heard people quote it in this way and may have thought they've just added a word in. And in the prayers... The prayers. Well, again, actually, um, this, that's probably an accurate translation. It's a plural word, and there is a definite article in front of it, so it could be translated the prayers. 
I think it's the idea of including individual and corporate prayers of all sorts of types. And we've done this study before here. Thanksgiving, praise, petition, confession, intercession, all of these things. There will be a lot of Old Testament quotes in their prayers because these were Jewish people steeped in the Old Testament. But there you have it. That's what they were doing. And that's what they kept on doing. And that's what they were determined to keep on doing. They continued steadfastly in these things. That was the characteristic of them as a group in those early days. So they were characterised by learning, by loving, and that's all my else, and by breaking of bread and by their prayers. And the effect of that is seen in verse 43. The effect was that fear came upon every soul, as many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. So you've got spiritual and numerical growth going to take place here. There was apostolic signs. These were early days. Now in chapter 3, uh, Luke, who writes the book of Acts, will specifically describe some of these wonders and signs. You have them in chapter 3. And the purpose of them was specific. It was to authenticate and affirm the authority of the apostles as being representative of God. And their testimony, their witness, their legal testimony to the resurrection, having that weight behind it, in those early days. And so, for example, Hebrews 2, verse 3 and 4 says this. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Remember, Hebrews is written to people with a Jewish background, the same audience as you have here in Jerusalem. Which of the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? It's the apostles. God also bearing them witness both with signs and with wonders, and with divers miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So what the writer to Hebrews describes there, you have historical narrative here in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3. And the result of it was just this. The people were full of awe. That's the word from which we get phobia from. They were full of reverential fear. No wonder. You just think about this, 3,000 people plus, and they've turned to Christ, the crucified Christ. There's a huge crowd of people now believe that he rose from the dead. And there's miracles and there's signs and there's wonders taking place in the city. It must have been dramatic. I mean, these cities were not the size of Glasgow in those days. This would be a large town. Word would be all around this city. This is going on. And it wasn't that they were just listened to. They were also watched. And the loving practical fellowship was manifested amongst them. Notice in verse 44 and verse 45. It says that all that believed were together and had all things common. Sold their possessions and goods, parted them to all men as every man had need. Now, this is not communism. Communism isn't particularly uh, fashionable these days, I don't think, but this is not communism. It would be nearer the idea of a commune than communism. But it's still not a commune. 
What this is, is a unique situation that I'll come to in a moment. But this is the practical, voluntary demonstration of sacrificial love amongst these people. And it's quite extreme. Luke gives more information about this practice as you go on into chapter 4. And it's abuse into chapter 5. You remember the whole Ananias and Sapphira story. And we find that people were doing things like if you had a piece of land, selling the land and giving the money to be shared out amongst the Christians. Now this wasn't a one-off thing. Neither was it a condition of fellowship or of salvation. This was something that flowed out after these things had happened. The word selling is in the imperfect tense, which is something that continued over a period of time. So it wasn't like a fire sale. You know, you get saved and then you have to divest yourself of all property in order to join this group. That's not what it was. As they continued steadfastly, they became aware of need and they met the need from their own resources. Now, it's interesting that this practice is not noted in any other church. It's also interesting that when Paul teaches extensively on giving, as he does in 2 Corinthians and chapter 9, he sets the test for that, which is this, that each one is to give as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So there never has to be a sense of compulsion. You don't force people to give. God does not desire his people to be forced. God desires his people to give in accordance with their means as God has blessed them and to give voluntarily as they are able. That's the principle. But the general point is just this. This is not, as I say, you know, this is not, you've not to become like an equal protester uh, and, you know, sell everything you have and go and live in a camp somewhere um, off the M25 or something like that. But what you have to do is recognise that underlying what they did in their context was a sacrificial love, an expression of fellowship to meet need amongst themselves. Now, this was expressed in a different way by the Macedonian churches. Because as time went on, the churches in Judea, in Israel, became impoverished. They were in great need. And the churches in Macedonia, Greece, part of Greece, they heard about that need. Now the churches in Macedonia were also poor. But out of their deep poverty, they gave what they had to the churches in Judea. Paul references this when he speaks about giving. He uses the Macedonian churches as an example of his teaching. And this is the point. It was done in a different way to other people. John, in his epistle, 1 John chapter 3, writes about this. He says, whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. Actions speak louder than words when it comes to kindness. Words are important. 
But if you're cold, words won't heat you up. And if you're hungry, words won't feed you. Hands need to go into pockets and pull out some change and some money out of wallets. That's the practical reality of it, to meet need amongst us. And there was that type of need there. Why was there such need in Jerusalem? Well, remember this, this was Pentecost. So people had come to Jerusalem from all over the world. And the Jewish people had been pilgrims. They had come up to Jerusalem. Many of them had got saved. And had stayed. There would have been need in that respect. Lots of visitors. <laughs> you know if you have lots of visitors. Some of you have lots of visitors. And visitors are extremely welcome but visitors that overstay their welcome, well, you know, these visitors as well. And the idea is just this, that it takes resources if you've got a, thousands of people staying. And they've got to live somewhere. Also, many of them would have suffered persecution as a result of turning to Christ in those days. Stepping out of their Jewish community. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is writing about. He's speaking to people who as Jews turned to Christ and the Bible tells us they had their property vandalised, they were cut off, they were excommunicated from their communities and so on, made outcasts. They would have been need as a consequence of that. Other people might just have been poor. Simple. They were widows and poor widows. Acts 6 tells us that. Whatever it was, 3,000 people coming together, there's need. And they were those who could and did sell what they had and minister to that need from their own resources. Maybe that is why the churches in Judea needed help from Macedonia. You can only sell land once. And you can only give away all your possessions once. And once you've done it, you can't do it again. And as famine and as difficulties went on in time, there were a church that had impoverished itself to meet need amongst them. And the consequence was, perhaps, they needed help from elsewhere as time went on. I don't know. But then notice, in addition to that, in verse 46, it says that they continued daily with one accord in the temple. There was no gospel halls. There was nothing like that then. So the only religious building they knew was the temple. That was, after all, built according to God's instruction. And so they went there. And they went there every day. And then you have this expression of breaking bread from house to house. Well, I'll let you decide what you think that means in these early days. Does it mean they just went to each other's house for supper? I don't think so. Does it mean that they shared their food and fellowship and they shared their homes? I think it does mean that. It may mean a bit more than that in these early days. It's the exact same expression as occurs earlier. And they ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. And the important point is that expression. And while they did these other things, so they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, this is what they did. They did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart as they went to the temple and as they went to each other's homes. They did eat their meat with gladness. And singleness of heart. What it means is just this, is that these were happy, humble people. That's what they were. Joyful, in fellowship, sharing. Don't let arguments about 
little details if you like lose the big picture here here are a group of people and they've been saved and they're joyful and they're united and look at verse 47 they're praising God and they're having favor with all the people so there's a Godward aspect to this and there's a testimony aspect to this here's a group of Christians living out Christ here's a group of people who are being marked they are an attractive group of people they are joyful. They're a worshipping people. They're a united people. They're a people who share, who are compassionate, who meet need. And it says this, and the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. Sometimes we think that building a local church is something we do. It's not. It's something God does. He uses us, but it's his work. Except the Lord build the house. They labour in vain, they build it. And the truth of it is just this. We are required to continue steadfastly. It's this balance again. We are required to be this sort of people. When need arises, we should meet that need. As we're able. We do pray together, fellowship together, live our lives connected, not disconnected. Not strangers to each other, but in fellowship with each other. But mark this. It's God that builds. And it's God that adds. Remember Peter to learn this lesson. As the Lord said to him, Upon this rock, I will build my church. I will build it. And we simply are those used by God. Vessels, sometimes we're described as conduits through which blessings should flow to others. Through which the work of Christ should be done. The words of Christ should be communicated. The character of Christ should be displayed. But ultimately, it's God who pours out the blessing. Paul had to remind the Corinthian church of this basic point. They were so taken up by their abilities and by their wisdom. And by their impressive displays of spirituality. And they were a sophisticated city. And no doubt, a sophisticated and wealthy church. They were the sort of place that folk wanted to be a part of. The sort of church you wanted to be in fellowship with because it was spectacular. Lots going on and lots of money about the place and very impressive. Paul speaks to them. He reminds them that they've got absolutely nothing that they did not receive in another context. But he also teaches them that... Ultimately, spiritual blessing comes from the greatest spiritual source there is, which is God himself. It is God who adds the increase. It's God that blesses. Paul says, Paul, well, he plants and Apollos, he waters. They all play their part, but it's God that gives the increase. That's why we pray. And don't just say prayers. We're asking God to work. And we need to be the people and we need to have the conditions and we need to have the application so that God can work through us. But it's his house, the local church. He'll build it in accordance with his purpose. 
That is not only a challenge, it's also a relief. It's also a relief. Because if it was only up to us, it literally would drive you crazy. If you thought it was all down to us, it really would cause you concern to think about that. But it's not just down to us. God will do his work. And we're glad of it. So glad. So let's just commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray.